Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2156 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 24 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Today, we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Now, last week, we saw the religious leaders in Jerusalem come to a breaking point. They were losing control over their fellow Jews and they were afraid that they would lose their important positions in Rome. In chapter 11, verses 47 and 48, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So they were scared of losing their power. We also saw one of Jesus' 12 disciples who had been with him for over three years come to a breaking point after seeing Mary anoint Jesus with $50,000 worth of perfume. It was more than his greed could take, and now he was ready to betray his rabbi. And today, the tide is turning. We see Jesus entering Jerusalem as the king. Our scripture is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 50, starting on page 1671 in your pew Bibles. And as we've done with other lengthy passages, I'll read it in sections throughout the message. So let's start with verse 12 through 19. The next day, a great crowd had come to the, for the festival, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out in the street shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, the king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he raised Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to each other, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And we see in today's passage that John's narrative suddenly shifts from that fragrant back banquet hall to the bustling streets of Jerusalem, where a throng of worshipers had come in anticipation of the Passover feast. As with the other feasts, the worshipers wondered, will Jesus show up at the Passover? And as he came into that city, riding on a humble donkey, they remember during our Palm Sunday service, I'd mentioned that people would raise palm branches as a sign of national unity. And this would be like us raising, waving our flags in the United States at a parade. But something we wouldn't do, but they did. They laid the palm branches in his way 
as he was coming into the city, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they laid out their palm branches. And they also took their cloaks or their mats and they laid them on the road for him to see as he walked into Jerusalem. He was honored as a king. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. And their shouts included that Messianic Psalm 118, verse 26. Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem many times in his ministry. So it was something he was used to doing, but this time was his triumphal entry to the capital of the Hebrew nation, and it differed in one respect. Now, instead of entering the city as a worshiper, he entered the city as the king of Israel. He claimed his rightful place as the king. But however, unlike a conquering king, warrior king, he entered the city on a symbol of peace, that lonely donkey. And rather than sitting high in a saddle on a white steed, prancing into town as a warrior would, or behind a stately chariot with a team of horses, John quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and stresses that Jesus was fulfilling that well-known messianic prophecy, daughter Zion, is a tender expression of the citizens of Jerusalem. His heart went out to the city. The events of that day wouldn't make any sense to the disciples. And you wonder, how could they be so dull? But we see back, looking back, hindsight is always 2020. But they didn't understand until he had ascended to heaven and received the Holy Spirit that gave them the wisdom to understand all the prophecies that were predicted about the Messiah coming and how he would come. In, how he would come. The events of the day didn't make sense but it was uh, him fulfilling those Messianic prophecies. But on the other hand, the Pharisees understood better than the disciples the events that were taking place that day. But unfortunately, their reactions belie their true motives. They prized the approval of men above all else, above truth, above the law, even above the welfare of their people of Israel. Because the arrival of the Messiah would shift the people's loyalty away from the Pharisees and those religious leaders and leave them powerless. They were so afraid that Rome was going to come in and take over that they would not even be able to worship as they had once. They had no option in their minds other than to eliminate Jesus. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert, I have the timeline that I had in there last week in a smaller form. I made it a larger this week. Let's just review this timeline a little bit. In the far left-hand corner was that miracle where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. And then he went to Ephraim with his disciples near the wilderness to escape or get away from those religious leaders that might have him killed. Then they came back to Bethany six days before the crucifixion and had supper with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That's where Mary worshipped him and Judas' greed got the better of him. And his triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem happened five days before the crucifixion where the people worshipped him and the Jews, those religious leaders, envied him. And then our next passage will be four days before the crucifixion. It says in verses 20 through 22, Now there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship the, at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir... They said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, 
Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, these Greeks were probably God-fearing Greeks, Gentiles interested in converting to Judaism, but something maybe stood in their way, and he wanted clarification from the rabbi, the teacher that was coming into town. So this was the day after he, he rode in on the donkey. For example, though, with Greeks, if they were eunuchs, those that were in bondage were not allowed to join the Messianic covenant people. But these ones were probably proselytes that came and said, we want to be part of this Jewish nation, this, this chosen people, God's covenant with Abraham. And in order to do so, they had to be circumcised and they had to have water baptism. So they brought him to Jesus. Why they approached Philip and not one of the other disciples, we can only conjecture, but maybe it was because Philip was a Greek name and it meant lover of horses. And he took him to his brother, Andrew. So Philip and Andrew were brothers. And Andrew was another Greek name, meaning manliness. And the pair took them, these proselytes, those who wanted to join the covenant family to see Jesus. As we move on to verses 23 through 26, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only as a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will have it eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now somehow, as these Greeks came to Jesus asking him, what must we do for eternal life? It signaled to Jesus that his hour was now here, had arrived. And throughout his ministry, Jesus anticipated the time where he would be glorified. And that, in his mind, meant the suffering death, rising again and then ascending to heaven was his glorification. The Lord appears to direct his response to a broader audience, though. John leaves out that snippet of that private dialogue between Jesus and the Greeks and addresses more of a complete of an overall people. We see in John's narrative how he uses snapshots and snippet to weave his narrative together. So he left out that private conversation with the Greeks, with those Gentiles. Jesus had come to the Jews with the gospel and it had accomplished its purpose. It attracted his own people, those who were Jews, those who were part of the Abrahamic covenant people, while part of those Jews rebelled against him. They were non-believers. Now, if Jesus' path to the cross, if you considered it a path of opening doors as he went through, the Greeks coming, the Gentiles coming into the family was that final door that needed to be open for him to go to the cross. It was a prediction quoted by Jesus during the cleansing of the temple. Now, if you remember, John's version of the cleansing of the temple was clear back in chapter 2. It wasn't in chronological order as much of John's gospel as not. He took that snapshot at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Actually, it occurred here during this Holy Week of what we call Holy Week, where he went in and cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple of those who were money changers and were selling sacrifices while cheating the people. And he cleansed them. This 
bazaar, Annas's bazaar, was set up in the court of the Gentiles. And one of the symbolisms for cleansing the temple was because the Greeks, the Gentiles, were now accepted into God's family. And this is what it was part of the symbolism for clearing out the temple. One, yes, they were corrupt and they were cheating people in God's holy temple. But secondly, it cleared the, temp, the court of the Gentiles to open it up so that all may come in to God's temple. And part of the, the Messianic prophecy is Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. And this talks about the cleansing of that temple. It says, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them into the holy mountain of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer, referring to the temple then there. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcast of Israel says, I will also bring others too besides my people Israel. So cleansing that temple that day was to open the temple up for the Gentiles to also worship the one and only God. Jesus knew that once his final element of his father's plan had fallen into place, nothing stood between him and the cross. It was a wide open path now. His dreadful hour had arrived, and celebration of that moment, Jesus outlined the rest of his Christian history in just three sentences. John chapter 20, 12, verses 24, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only as a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And next, he articulated the primary principle for the kingdom that he would apply personally in verse 25. Anyone who sees or who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And finally, he called the believers to follow his example through discipleship in verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, like Sarah, I was fresh out of wheat, stalks of wheat. So in place of that, I brought in an ear of corn. And imagine an ear of corn from a single kernel of corn from a single one of these various kernels will produce a stalk of corn. And on that stalk, you'll either get one or two additional ears on that stalk. Each ear of corn will contain somewhere between 700 and 800 kernels. So let's use an example. If we had two ears of corn on this stalk that was planted, grew from one kernel, that would be 1,500 kernels. Now, if I transplanted those 1,500 kernels and each of those stalks produced two ears of corn with seven to 800 kernels per ear, that would be 2,252,200 kernels of corn. And Christ was saying, my kingdom is like a single kernel. First, I must die so that others might live to produce this kingdom that he was bringing about. So from that single kernel of corn, Jesus Christ, he planted himself, he must die to bring his kingdom about. And that's what we are to do. 
We are to be those kernels of corn that produce another stock, that produces two more ears, that produces 1,500 kernels of corn within his kingdom. And that's what Jesus was talking about, the wheat. But in order to do so, a kernel of wheat or a kernel of corn must die to itself in order to produce new life. And that's the example that Jesus was referring to. As I put the picture of the wheat in the bulletin with verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only as a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So when we die to ourselves and further the kingdom of God, we will produce many seeds. As we move on to verses 27 through 30, after cleansing the temple, Jesus proceeded on into the temple proper. And he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from he came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it was had thundered. Others said it was an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. The realization that nothing stood between Jesus and the cross now leads to a touching glimpse of his humanity. He was fully human while being fully divine. In particularly transparent moment, we see the Lord overcome by dread. He knew that he would face agony on a cosmic scale, not only the physical pain of crucifixion, which from my understanding is one of the worst type of deaths you can imagine. Nevertheless, it was agony that he came to earth for. In fact, the father verified it with a voice that was heard from heaven, which some understood, other thought it was just thunder. As we move on to verses 31 through 33, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to, to die. And John inserts his sidebar in verse 33 to tell us exactly what he meant. Now Jesus reaffirmed his earlier teaching to the proclamation of the truth in a form of judgment by which individuals must decide their own fate. They can believe or they can choose not to believe. In the, the phrase lifted up from the earth is another instance of Jesus used throughout his ministry of a double meaning. In the literal sense, the phrase is a familiar idiom for the crucifixion, a death that he would endure on for the behalf of all. He calls all people to die with him in proxy, as Romans chapter 6 tells us. In other words, anyone may appropriate Christ's atoning death to themselves, that penalty that was paid for their sin, and they get applied to themselves on account of their belief. Those who choose not to believe will not benefit from this gift of grace. Thus, judgment in condemning themselves by not believing. Yet figuratively, the phrase lifted up from the earth also describes Jesus as he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, calling all people to join him there. Jesus declared the substitutionary death, which appropriated through belief as that fi final and fatal blow to evil. Now we say, well, evil certainly lingers in our society today. You can't watch a, a news program or read any type of news post without understanding that. 
but its demise is inevitable. We are in that last days, any time between when Jesus rose from the earth until he returns again is considered the last days. And at the end of that last day, evil will be completely disposed of. Jesus declared that his substitutionary death, which appropriated by belief, was what we needed. However, we don't have to worry about evil in this world as a believer. Because Christ in John 10, verse 10 says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's why we're here as believers. We're free from the penalty of sin and death. Death is just a gateway to being with the Lord for eternity. As we move on to verses 34 through 36, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have this light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while there you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Now the crowd immediately understood the portion of Jesus' assertion that he, the Christ, would be lifted up. However, their challenging, challenging challenge reflects a theological concern that they had or a problem about the Messiah. And it persists even with the Jews today. The Messiah of the Old Testament was to be a warrior king who will conquer Israel's foes, lead to prosperity, and rule from the throne of David forever. Yet he was also described in the Old Testament as a suffering servant who will die on behalf of his people. How can this man vanquish foes and rule from a throne if he dies? Well, to solve this conundrum, the Jews theorized in the Old Testament, latter Old Testament days, that the Messiah may come in two individuals acting in concert. However, the Jews of Jesus' days hadn't considered the possibility of a single individual fulfilling both of these roles. That he would die for the people, and then when he rose again, at some point, he'll come back as that everlasting king. They didn't understand the difference between the first coming of the Messiah and when he returns to rule and reign on earth, vanquishing evil and restoring that global Eden on earth, where heaven and earth combine. After Jesus completed his revelation, he retreated to the safety of seclusion, not because he was avoiding death. He knew that he had come to earth to die but to invest in his final hour of preparing his disciples. And if you look at the timeline once again, the next several weeks will be in that last section, John 13 through 17. He went away and hid himself because he wanted that private time with his disciples to focus those last three days before the crucifixion on teaching them everything they needed to know before he departed. Now, verses 37 through 43, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts, so that they neither can see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. Because if they had, and I would have healed them. Israel said this 
or Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke to, about him. Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now, the remaining of chapter 12 is a two-part postscript at the end of this section of John's narrative. The first part, which I just read, verses 36 through 43, consists of John's editorial comments regarding the state of those who un unbelievers within the nation of Israel. The second part, which I'll read in a moment, summarizes Jesus' teaching throughout the ministry of his three-plus years that he was on earth. But to describe what Isaiah meant here a little bit better about God hardening their hearts, let me tell you a tale of two hearts. The Bible describes it as the Lord hardened someone's heart. And what exactly does that mean? Well, at first glance, it might say, well, that's unjust. The Lord hardened a person's heart. How can they believe then? How can the Lord justify punishing someone, rejecting that person because the heart has been hardened by God? And I think the best example of this is between Moses and Pharaoh. These two men begin their lives under similar circumstances. For the first 40 years of their lives, both of them grew up in the household of an Egyptian sovereign. Both received the education of, from the schools of those idolatrous priests. Both enjoyed a standard of living far above those who were in the mud pit existence of slaves. Both became heirs to privileges of royalty. However, their paths diverged when God intervened in the life of one. Although Moses was guilty of murder, the Lord hid him on the far side of nowhere and devoted the next 40 years of teaching and transforming his character as a lowly shepherd. Now, Pharaoh, on the other hand, continued his privileged existence in the palace of Egypt and eventually became the sovereign of Egypt. He did not suffer the humiliation of a fugitive as Moses did. He did not endure that hard scrabble existence of an itinerant shepherd in the wilderness. Instead, he spent 40 years in the palace just as he had before. Now when the proper time arrived, the next stage of God's redemptive plan, he brought those two who grew up together those 40 years face to face once again. And Moses demanded the release of the Israelites, but Pharaoh refused, claiming the right to sovereignty over the entire nation of Egypt. At that moment, the Lord could have batted his eyes and snuffed out Egypt to make it just a particle of dust on the history page. Instead, he responded with a series of difficulties, which gradually increased in severity. His stated purpose is in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. But I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Now, Pharaoh stubbornly was stubbornly dedicated himself to evil in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. This was Pharaoh's personal choice. He, did, he chose evil. God did not choose it for him. However, the Lord hardened him once he made that choice, and God solidified his resolve to pursue that evil that was deep within his heart. And the Lord completely is completely righteous in doing so. God doesn't owe grace to any of us. Therefore, no one is no less just to allow Pharaoh to remain in his chosen evil and to suffer those consequences for the choices he made. 
Moreover, the Lord turned Pharaoh's evil into an opportunity to assert his sovereign claim over the Israelites and to demonstrate his power and his triumph over evil. In Romans, Paul recounts this divergent path between Moses and Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9 to vindicate the righteous character of God. Their story does this in two ways. First, it demonstrates God's grace. He intervened in the life of both men, giving both of them ample opportunity to make a choice between God and rejecting God. Both an ample opportunity to humble themselves, to accept or to reject. And second, it demonstrates God's justice. He responded to each man in accordance to their choice. And that takes us back to Jesus' ministry today, in our passage today. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he successfully divided the believers from the non-believers, the willing hearts from those rebellious hearts. And he confined each individual to their own choice that they made. He received willing hearts of grace and then hardened the others because they made the choice to reject him. And the hardening, the scripture declares, has solidified the resolve of each rebellion, rebellious person to pursue the, the evil that was deep within their heart. John quoted the two passages on Isaiah as an example of the unbelieving response of those Israelite believers, the religious leaders. Both support his explanation that the non-believers were hardened and blinded by God and therefore could not believe once they made that choice. But they still had a choice. As we see that some of the leaders, religious leaders, chose to believe in Jesus. Now they kept it a secret because they were more concerned about the praise of men than the praise of God. One must understand the nature of divine hardening. In the case of Jesus, the truth, even now, our hearts are either softened to a point of surrender or hardened to a chosen point of rebellion. John qualified that with, he said, some of the religious leaders did believe, although they didn't come out verbally and say so. But we know that Eric, John, the, the, the Nicodemus and the other one that slips in my mind, in the grave of Christ, um, that, that had the tomb. Joseph, thank you. Joseph of Arimathea. I appreciate that, John. And Nicodemus, we know that were at least two of those religious leaders that were part of the Sanhedrin that did believe in Jesus, although they kept it quiet for a period of time. And we see when Jesus ascended back to heaven, many of the religious leaders then believed that he was the Messiah. As we move on to the last Verses of this passage, John 12, 44 through 50. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me has seen, has seen the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stray in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the world to judge, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them in that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father 
told me to say. Now, in this passage, there's a series of seven declarations in this, these seven verses. Jesus summarizes them. And his teaching was a public ministry, and I've listed these five truths about Jesus in your bulletin insert. The first truth is, Jesus is the one with the Father, is one with the Father. To believe in one is to believe in the other, verses 44 and 45. The second truth is Jesus is a personal representation, that literal embodiment of all truth. Therefore, to believe the divine truth is to not accept a set of facts, but to believe in that person named Jesus, verse 46. Third truth is Jesus did not come to condemn anyone, but to present himself as truth to be believed. Those who fail to believe condemn themselves. Verse 47 and 48. The fourth truth, everything Jesus does is necessarily the will of the Father because they are of the same essence. Verse 49. And the fifth truth is the Father sent the Son into the world to provide humanity the ability to receive eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, verse 50. Now, once Jesus had proclaimed that good news to the world and had fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning that Messiah, he concluded his public ministry and says, I'm done. That's all I'm going to say in public. The next three days were focused strictly on his disciples. He took them into seclusion for his departure and the future work of evangelism that they would have to complete. So the application today, in addition to these five truths that we just went over, is freedom of worship. We can worship God anywhere, anytime, and any method. God established Israel in the land that he promised Abraham and his descendants. He directed them to construct with detail a place of worship. First, it was a tent, which we refer to as the tabernacle. Later, Solomon erected a temple for God. And for many generations after that, the followers had to travel to Jerusalem in order to worship God, to offer their sacrifices, to seek God's forgiveness, to worship him. However, when the Son of God arrived, he brought a change to the worship order with him. His dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus said, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when you will no longer matter whether you worship the God of, on this, worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him on the, in that way. For God is a spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. When God walked on the earth in flesh, in that embodiment of Jesus Christ, no one needed at that point a temple or a priest to interact with the Almighty. They could see and meet with him face to face. Worshippers didn't have to travel to a fixed location. God came to them in that person of Jesus Christ. Worship didn't have to follow any type of prescribed form. God welcomed any expression of worship and off, that was offered with sincerity. From the moment the Son of God arrived on earth, he released the worship from the temple, and he made it very clear in his crucifixion when he rent that curtain asunder from top to bottom and opened up the Holy of Holies that we can proceed boldly before the throne of Christ or the throne of God, that we might worship him freely. 
In this chapter 12 of John's Gospel highlights this momentous paradigm shift describing several acts of worship, beginning with Mary's spontaneous extravagant adoration of him. From her, we learn to worship with an outpouring of our prayers and our devotion to him. She was holding back nothing. She was willing to sacrifice herself and her reputation and possibly a future marriage in order to worship God. We need to worship like Mary did. Now, overall, we have such a sweet spirit here at Putnam. When we have friends and relatives visit with us, invariably afterwards, they'll say, your church is such a friendly church. I could feel the love of the people there. So let us not ever lose that type of worship here at Putnam. Let us not lose that love for Christ. Let us continue to foster that spirit here. As we learn, we'll learn in a couple weeks from John chapter 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our love for each other, not proving in theological arguments with others, but our love for one another will prove to the world. As Christ rode on that humble donkey, he opened the temple for the Greeks to worship. This was the one last chance where Greek, where Jews and Gentiles would come together to worship. Now next Sunday, we'll see Jesus take on the task of the lowliest of all servants as he washes his disciples' feet in a message titled, Humility Personified. I'd ask you to read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 in preparations for next week's message. But then let us go and worship. Let us go and prove to the world that we are his disciples. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, coming to earth opening up the temple that we as Gentiles may come in boldly before your throne to worship you. As Jews and Gentiles are made one, as we're all part of your covenant family now, let us love one another to show our love and adoration for you. Let us worship openly and freely to show forth Jesus Christ in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, Learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.